Tonight, we're going to be looking at a passage that is not a parable of Jesus. For the last several Sunday evenings, we've been looking at some of the parables of Jesus, and, and tonight I was going to do that, but uh, the Lord led me somewhere else. I wanted to kind of tie in a little bit of what we've been talking about from Sunday night, or Sunday morning rather, uh, regarding the, the holiness of God and, and what hope and encouragement we have as believers in light of what, pursue, what we're pursuing as Christians. So in your Bibles this evening, we're going to be looking at a passage from 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, and in a moment we'll read the first three verses, 1 John chapter 3 and verses 1, 2, and 3, in a sermon that I've titled, A Purifying Hope, A Purifying Hope. Now the verses that we'll be looking at here this evening will demonstrate how blessed, how blessed really that, that Christians truly are. Now, these verses will evidence the great joy that every single believer in Christ should have and should regularly be experiencing. Uh, these verses describe, as I've titled the message tonight, a purifying hope. They describe a hope that sets believers apart from anyone else in the world because the hope that is given to believers is an eternal hope. Now, I've mentioned this as part of a, of, a, of a different message with regards to the word hope, but the word hope in today's vernacular has, often has a negative connotation attached to it. It's as if there is a possibility that the hope, whatever we're hoping in, may not come to be. However, when we read about hope in Scripture, it is always a certainty. It is always associated with something that is certain to come to pass. We're not left to wonder if what we're having hope in may go unfulfilled. But we may be assured that our hope, especially in God, will definitely be met. Uh, the truth is revealed in the original language, which determines that the word for hope literally means a confident expectation. When we use the word hope today, it's usually coupled with reluctance, with hesitance, not a confident expectation. There is a considerable amount of uncertainty present that never should be present. My hope for you this evening, or should I say my confident expectation for you this evening, is that you will all understand the great purifying nature found in the believer's hope in God. So with your Bibles open to 1 John chapter 3, would you follow along as I read the first three verses? 1 John chapter 3 and verses 1 through 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure." As a believer in Christ, you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. To the, he, he is the ever-loving, the ever-merciful God, and that alone is worth bringing you joy every single day that you are alive. Toward the end of Moses' life, he offered his final blessing from God to the nation of Israel. And I want you to notice what he says to the entire nation in Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse number 29. In Deuteronomy 33 verse 29, he says, Happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, O people, saved by the Lord, the shield of thy help, and who is the sword of thy excellency? 
I love that phrase right there in the middle where he says, who is like unto thee, O people, saved by the Lord? That may have been said many, many years ago regarding a completely different group of people at a different time, but can't the same be said to every single believer in Christ today? Who is like unto thee, O people, saved by the Lord? The first verse of 1 John chapter 3 describes how great God the Father loves us that we should be called the sons of God. Again, it says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Who is like unto us who have been saved by the Lord? And yet what is truly amazing is that the main portion of of the believer's inheritance rests not so much in what we have as opposed to what we shall have. There is a key phrase in 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 2. Notice again what it says here in verse 2. It says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. It says right there in the middle, it says, And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. For the unbeliever... Everything to come is in darkness. The unbelievers should expect to go from the shades of the evening to the blackest of midnight that shall never end. But for the Christian, he, shall, uh, he, 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 he has been called out of darkness to join Christ into what the Bible describes as marvelous light. As believers today, we have the eyes of hope that are given to each and every one of us. And looking past all the darkness of this world, we are able to behold a just, maybe a tiny glimpse, a glimpse of the glory that is yet to be fully revealed in all of us. And therefore, we are blessed with all the joys of this future glory that God has in store for us. We should have every reason then to be encouraged. We should have every reason to be refreshed when we're feeling down because we know with absolute certainty that our future is secure in Christ. While we're taking a slightly uh, interesting approach, if you will, at, at this passage, I want, to, I want you to understand that in the practical sense uh, where our desire should be is, as we're Christians who ought to be seeking holiness in our lives, as we talked about the last couple Sunday mornings, I want us to see just the result of hope in the, purity, and the hope and purity of the believer's life. Verse 3 here in 1 John chapter 3, it describes hope within the believer. It says, And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Every man, it says, that hath this hope in him. It is the believer's hope. The believer is the only one that hath this, has this hope that he's talking about. Not the believer's hope in himself. The object of every Christian is to be more like our Lord and Savior. It states there in verse number 2, it says, We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, if I surveyed each and every one of you and asked you, what is your greatest hope? What is the thing that brings you the most joy as you look towards the future? Quite possibly, I'd get a different response from each person. Some might suggest that their greatest hope would be to walk through the pearly gates of heaven and to see all the loved ones that have gone on before them who have passed on from this life. Some might suggest that the greatest hope for them is to finally rid themselves of all the aches and pains of this temporal body and receive the glorified body that God has promised us where we're not going to see age and sickness and, and any, any problem ever again. 
Others might suggest that the greatest hope for you would be finally having all the answers to all these difficult questions that the Bible isn't clearly black and white on but almost leaves gray and you'd be finally waiting to get all this clarity on so many controversial passages of Scripture. Others might share that the greatest hope would be to finally be free from all the shackles of sin here in this life, to enjoy the blessings of the new life that God intended for every single believer. And these are all truly wonderful things and things that are, are worth being the object of our joy and desire. Every believer confidently expects each of these wonders to be experienced one day. But the reality is that all of these are really the lesser joys of heaven. These are the appetizers, if you will, of heaven, if you will. But because while all these are beyond wonderful, the greatest hope, which is the confident expectation for the believer, rests in something so much greater than a glorified body, than freedom from sin and sickness and whatever it may be. The heaven that a true Christian seeks after and hopes for is a spiritual one. It is the heaven of being like our Savior, Jesus Christ. While I believe that there are many things that we will share with our Redeemer, our text this evening seems to focus in on our being spiritually like our Savior, being purified, the Bible says, even as he is pure. Again, in verse number three, it says, Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is is pure. Now I can confidently say that of all my expectations of heaven, there is not one thing that I am looking forward to more than knowing that I shall one day be in perfect holiness just like my Savior Jesus Christ is. If I may become like Jesus as to his character, pure and perfect like the Bible describes here, I cannot understand how any other joy could ever be denied me if I am like my Savior in this way. If these verses are true, that we shall one day be like him, for we shall see him as he is, the Bible says, then we shall truly have everything. Not to mention the fact that the greatest joy of heaven possibly is the presence of God. The hope of every Christian should be to understand Christ, to see him as he is, to, to be like him free from all sin, full of consecration to God, pure and perfect, as the Bible says. When we look at our Savior today, we see him as the great conqueror over sin, the one who went to the cross on our behalf, the one who, who, who paid the ransom for every single believer, the one who conquered death and hell, the one who is our holy and our righteous intercessor, the one who has conquered all of the powers of evil, the one who one day we too, shall, we too through him, shall see the end of all, all powers of sin, and we'll know what it means when Romans 8 verse 37 says, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We will one day really know what it means to be a conqueror to sin. That is our hope. That is our hope as Christians that we shall be like our Redeemer who conquered sin and death when we shall see him as he is, the Bible says. And in case you're wondering or questioning how this can all be true, allow me to show you the basis of our hope, why it is that every single believer in Christ should expect to have such a great hope in our Savior. I want, you to first, I want to first point out that the basis of our hope has absolutely nothing to do with ourselves or anything that we've done or anything that we will ever do. This passage makes it crystal clear that the reason that believers have hope in anything is not because we are good enough or that we will one day be good enough. The basis of all our hope is in the love that God has for us. Notice again what it says in verse number one. 
because it sets the tone so clearly. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Behold, it says, what manner of love. You know what it means to behold? Who can tell me what it means, behold? See, look, pay attention, are you seeing this? Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. How many of you, as Christians, it doesn't matter how long you've been saved, but how many of you have ever sat back and thought how incredible it is that God has ever chosen to save you? That God has ever decided to give you grace and to save you from all your sin and all your depravity and say, you are now going to be a child of mine. How many of you thought back just how wonderful it is that you can just put yourself in this category and honestly say, you are a child of God. It's unbelievable. None of us deserve it. We deserve the exact opposite. We deserve never to be called a child of God. We deserve eternal condemnation and damnation and hell. We deserve separation from God forever. And yet, the Bible tells us that through faith in Jesus Christ, it says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. How does it all happen? Oh, because we were good enough, right? How does it all happen? Oh, because collectively, the whole body of work that Latham Bible Baptist Church was able to do over the course of its entire existence, we were finally able to reach perfection. So every member who has ever been a member on the roll sheet here at this church is ushered into heaven, right? No, no, has nothing to do with our works and will never. But it says, behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Jesus Christ, he is the one who has paid the way for us, and it was out of God's love that he sent us his son in the first place. Without him, we're hopeless. Without him, we have nothing at all. So knowing that everything has been done by our Savior and that through faith in him, we shall be called the sons of God, is there a reason for us not to rejoice? No, there is not a reason for us never not to rejoice. We should expect to be like Jesus and see him as he is only because of God's great love for us. It is according to the nature and the purpose of the love of God to make its object like God. God has chosen us to be the objects of his love. Isn't that kind of remarkable? When's the last time you, you looked in the mirror? And I, I mean really stared into the mirror and at the person looking back at you. And when's the last time, as you're looking at your reflection in the mirror, you thought, now that's a person worth loving. Now that's a person that I can see why God would love that, why God would love that person. Generally, that's not going to be the case. Because the, the mirror, for one thing, doesn't lie, does it? The mirror shows you warts and all, flaws and all, gray hair, wrinkles, everything. It shows everything. And as time goes by, the face that's staring you back in the mirror is looking a little more tired, a little more weary, a little more exhausted, and you're seeing just age take over, sickness take over, sin have its effect on you, and it's never something that you're thinking, that warrants the love of God. There is no divine spark that is within any of us where as long as God keeps peeling back all these layers from us and says, finally, I found something worth loving in these people. No, no. There is nothing in us, nothing in us that would warrant God's love. And yet the Bible says, behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. 
it's, that right there in and of itself is an incredible study to take your time studying. Behold what manner of love. The, the love that God has for us is off the charts. It is off of every chart. It is so incredibly unbelievable that along with the holiness of God probably cannot be defined or contained in any amount of books. It is a love that we'll never know, at least not here on this side. It is a love that only God can show, and he decides to choose us as the objects of that love. Unbelievable, truly unbelievable that we should ever be called the sons of God, that he would love us that much. And as a result of God's great love that is bestowed upon us, we are not only the sons and daughters of God, but we should also expect that God's divine love will work his divine light and bring his divine purity to make us into light and purity as well. You see, being the object of God's love, he is daily making you more into the image of his son. He is daily preparing you for what you're going to receive in heaven because as you stand right now, you cannot enter into heaven. You are not fit for heaven just yet. Some of us are a little bit closer to heaven, but as you stand right now, you're not fit. God is working on each and every one of us, and he is preparing us for this future glory. God's love bestowed upon each believer, it is done for the purpose of purifying the believer, of making each and every one of us into the image of Christ. We're not just called sons of God, but as you look at verse number two, it says again, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Now are we the sons of God. This, that is another basis of our hope. We, we hope to be like Christ because the sons of God are like each other. Listen to what is stated in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 29. Romans 8 verse 29 says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, this verse is stating that it is the Lord's design that Jesus Christ shall be the firstborn among many brethren. As Christians, we have been adopted into the household of God and we're made to be like our elder brother, Jesus. And it's truly amazing to see God's design and God's purposes, all of them expressed in scripture, especially as we understand that God has chosen to include each and every one of us as believers into his ultimate design. There is more to consider about the basis of our hope because right now as believers, the Bible says we are one in Christ. But one day, as it states here in verse number two, it says, when he shall appear, we shall be like him. There is an intimate connection between the soul of every single believer and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus was hidden from the world, and it says the world knew him not. Therefore, we as Christians are hidden from the world. The world does not know us because we are no longer a part of this world. But what we are assured of is that there is coming a day when Christ shall appear to all men. And when he is seen, we shall be seen as well. Knowing that we're united to Christ by his divine hands, we expect that when we shall see our Savior as he is, that we shall be like him. And what a joy. What a joy that'll be to finally see the wonderful connection that we have with our Savior. We can certainly feel it. We feel it today through the presence of the Holy Spirit, the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. But to actually behold it, to see your Savior with your very own eyes, 
I can't even fathom the thought. There is nothing so wonderful that I've ever experienced here on earth that I can say, oh, it's going to be like this. We can't even put it into any sort of frame of reference because what this what these verses are describing are something that are 10 times, a million times greater than what we'll, ever, what we'll ever experience here in this life. We can certainly feel it through the presence of the Holy Spirit, too, but to actually see and behold our Savior with our eyes is something that truly cannot be explained. Even with the eternal presence of the Holy Spirit, they, we still often go through times of doubt and times of uncertainty. Times when the devil does everything he can to try and discourage us, try and help lead us to doubt our salvation. And that connection, though, that we have with Christ, at times it may seem like it's hanging by a thread. Especially when the devil's attacks get worse. But even hanging on by the hem of Christ's garments offers more power and strength than anything the devil can ever bring against us. Though the connection to Christ may appear weak at times, God has never loosened his grip on any one of his children. And that connection will never be seen clearer than when he shall appear and we shall see him as he is. When I think about this, I think about how it is that uh, Ruthie and I will walk with the kids throughout the, through the parking lot. Anywhere there's a lot of cars, we'll tell them that you, they have to hold our hand. And they think that they're holding our hand and they think that their safety is contingent upon their grip on us. But really what we're doing is we're holding their hand. So we're not leaving it up to them to loosen their grip or for their hand to slip and because their grip wasn't tight enough. We're holding their hand throughout all of life. And what God is telling us is the same thing. He says, you trust in me, you continue to look to me. But even though I know you're going to fail, even though I know you're going to falter and stumble throughout life, know that it's not you that is holding and keeping and maintaining your salvation. He says, I'm the one that actually has a grip on you. And no one, no one, he says that has come to me has ever been cast out no one who is in the palm of Jesus hand has ever been plucked out and that's the assurance that we have that no matter how much we are oppressed no matter how much the devil may try and pluck us out of the father's hand as John 10 27 29 tell us no man even the devil himself can ever pluck anyone out of the father's hand a child of God is a child of God forever Jesus never revokes that adoption now as we consider these verses well, above all, I think it's safe to, to, to say that the basis of our hope then lies completely in Jesus Christ. I want you to look again at what it says here in verse number three. It says, And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. All true hope, and again, hope is a confident expectation. All of it is in Christ. If your hope for the future lies in yourself, you are only delusional. If your hope rests in earthly, earthly things, you are again delusional. Your hope cannot rest in yourself. It, your hope cannot rest in a pastor. Your hope cannot rest in a parent because having hope in anything apart from Christ is completely delusional. If your hope is resting with one foot in Christ and one foot on your own works, you're utterly going to fail. The verse is clear. It says, hope in him. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself. And who's the him? Christ. Jesus Christ himself. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. Hope in Jesus Christ is that only hope that can ever be acceptable to God. It is the only hope that will ever stand the test of your dying hour and the day of judgment. Our hope then of being like Christ is not a hope that is found in our own strength and in our own ability and in our own intellect, but a hope in the power and love of Christ to accomplish what he's promised to accomplish in us according to his word. We're trusting God completely, in other words. 
And you know what? God has never given me a reason to doubt him. God has never failed even one single word that he has given me in his word or promised me in prayer. If God does not make us like his son, Jesus Christ, then all our hope is indeed gone. And that would make God a liar, but we know that God is not a liar. If we ever get to heaven, it is only going to be through Jesus Christ and through him alone. Scripture describes him as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending. Jesus is where our hope begins, and Jesus is where our hope ends, because it is through him and only through him that our hope receives its completion when we've been received into heaven and become like him. Our assurance, our trust, our hope, our confident expectation is in none other than Jesus Christ. This then is the believer's hope, a hope to be made like Christ, a hope based completely on Christ. Now, as we consider these verses, I want you to also notice the effect, the effect that hope in Christ has upon the soul of the believer. Again, uh, notice verses 1, 2, and 3 again. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. This wonderful hope that the believer has in Christ is not something that puffs us up and makes us proud and causes us to stick out our chest and to boast in anything of ourselves. When the Lord shows a person how much he loves him, he humbles that person. He doesn't make him prideful or even desiring to boast in himself even for a second. And so the expectation of heaven, the expectation of an absolutely perfect environment and the presence of God himself never exalts the person. We don't boast in anything else else but Jesus Christ. The Bible says, he that glorieth, let him glory in himself. Right? No. He that glorieth, the Bible says, let him glory in the Lord. If you're boasting in your religion, your boasting is misplaced. Your religion is nothing that is ever worth boasting in. The purpose of God's love upon us is not that we would be able to boast more, but that we would be humbled more. The more we learn and the more we understand about God, the more we realize just how much God has done for us and how little we do. Those that grow a great deal in self-esteem through the love of God don't fully understand the love of God. I pray that the more we grow to learn about God's love toward us, the more we would humble ourselves at his feet. When the apostle Peter was led by Christ to catch a multitude of fish in Luke chapter 5, he responded to Christ not by boasting in how many fish he just caught, but by humbling himself at the feet of Jesus. And I want you to listen to what Peter said in Luke chapter 5 and verse number 8. It says, when Simon Peter saw it, and the, it is this massive haul of fish that he has just caught, because Jesus says, you know, just throw your net one more time. And he said, we've done it all night. We haven't caught anything. You know, who are you? I'm the skilled fisherman, but okay, I'll put one net out. When he saw it, he says, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He didn't start boasting to all the people and say, would you look at this, all the fish that I caught. Man, I'm the best fisherman around, aren't I? No. He realized his sinful and horrible position to the God of the universe who he has just encountered. It is humbling to see the presence and the love of God in your life. 
a person who has this hope of perfection in Christ also finds that it does not give him the freedom to sin. It does not give him the freedom to sin. Some people think that as soon as they get the guarantee to heaven, as soon as Jesus says, you're saved once and for all, the Holy Spirit within you is now the seal upon you that you are saved eternally. They think then they can go ahead and live as they please here on earth. Once a person finds out, though, that they are guaranteed to go to heaven, there is a risk of them going off to live the very frivolous life, thinking that they can do and say as they please because they know this heaven is guaranteed and that it can never be taken away from them no matter how rotten of a life they go on to live. A person, though, who has this hope of perfection in Christ, this hope of heaven through Jesus Christ, is not given the freedom to live as he chooses. Believers do not have the freedom to continue in sin that grace, God's grace will continue to abound. In fact, Romans 6, verses 1 to 2 says exactly this. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, I can do whatever I want, right? Because God's grace is, is greater than my sin. So no matter what I do and how bad it is, the grace of God has already covered my sin. The grace of God has already made me new in Christ. So I can't lose what God has given, right? I can go and sin and abound in sin knowing that God's grace will abound even more, right? The next two words that follow are some of the strongest and, and very harshest words in the Bible. It says, God forbid. God forbid. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? God doesn't save us. God doesn't give us hope in Christ and then hand over a license to us to say, you may, you may go and sin as freely and openly as you want to. Your home in heaven is secure. Live it up here on earth. Enjoy every last moment until I call you home. No. God requires that we still live a perfect life while we're here on earth. Knowing all of what Christ has done for us, we should be completely disrespectful. It would be completely disrespectful to live any other way than to please Christ. To continue a willfully sinful life here on earth after being saved is telling Jesus that we don't feel the need for him here. But we're glad that we have his assurance once heaven, uh, once this life is over. And if that's really your mindset, then I truly doubt that you have the hope that is spoken of here in 1 John chapter 3. Quite honestly, God wouldn't give you such a great hope of perfection, a great hope of salvation, a great hope of heaven while you're in a state where you prefer to continue living in sin as opposed to live for Christ. God is not in the business of rewarding disobedience to him and disobedience to his word. If a true Christian, if a true Christian had the ability to live as he liked, how do you think he would live? How would you live if the ability was freely given to you to live any way you wanted to live here in this life? Well, I can tell you what the true Christian would say. The true Christian would absolutely choose to live without sin free from all the effects of sin. When you know the Bible and you know that God requires you to live a perfect life as he is perfect. What did we just talk about this morning? Be ye holy for I am holy, God says. It would be your desire to then do as he says, to live a life completely perfect without sin because that would be meeting the standard of God's holiness in your life. The, st the standard that God has established. If God gave every believer the ability to do so, every single true believer would run after holiness until we got there. 
the non-Christian would be a whole lot different. The non-Christian would choose to live in sin. He would seek to gratify himself and all the pleasures of this flesh and all the pleasures of this world. It is a complete contrast to the true Christian because the Christian seeks to eagerly obey God in love. When the Lord has changed you, and he's made you a new creation, the Bible says, he can give you not only a hope, but also a full assurance that that hope he's given you shall indeed come true, and yet you will walk all the more carefully with your God. For the Bible says, every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. There is a definite change in the believer from the old man he was before Christ saved him and the new man that he now is in Jesus Christ. In 2 in 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Bible says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. In Christ, we have become brand new creatures. Our desires change. Our passions change. Our behavior changes. The more we understand about God and what he saved us from, the more it becomes our desire to no longer live for ourselves, but to live for our Savior. And all of this stems from the hope in Christ that is given to every single believer. This hope in Christ then doesn't cause us to boast in ourselves. It doesn't cause us to, it doesn't give us a license to sin. And the reason why true believers don't go completely in the wrong direction is because there is now an immense gratitude for God with the recognition of the hope that we now have in Christ. Gratitude in the working of God leads to holiness, leads to the pursuit of holiness. Any person who knows that God has saved them and that they are now on their way to being made more into the image of Christ will also recognize that they owe everything to God. They will seek to show God the utmost gratitude. When someone does something nice for you, you go out of your way to make sure that they know how much you appreciate what has been done. Most of us, uh, most of the time, we're able to even the score, if you will. We make ourselves feel as if we've shown enough gratitude for the kindness that has been extended to us. But what about when God shows you eternal kindness? It's one thing to reciprocate kindness and generosity when someone gives you a gift or when someone shows some sort of act of kindness to you. But how could we possibly reciprocate an act of grace and kindness that God has given that has eternal value? And that is precisely why our devotion and our love for God is not something that just fades after one or two services that we've attended for church. We recognize that his kindness and grace is eternal upon us and our lives become enthralled in wanting to live for him every single day because even a lifetime devoted to him isn't enough. Now, I also don't want you thinking that this mindset is an obligatory mindset, that we are obligated to now show appreciation to God because then it's not true appreciation. But my point is that when God changes you as a believer, he makes you a new creation, our desires now change to want to show our appreciation to him, to want to please him because we desire to please our Savior. Not because we're desiring to even the score or to reciprocate his act of kindness to us. Your salvation is seriously in question if you look at all that God is doing for you and then determine that you can continue to live in sin. 
Such unsaved and insensitive people deserve the just punishment of eternal damnation that is coming to them when they think this way. But where there is the good hope of heaven in Jesus Christ, the true Christian naturally says, Lord, you have loved me so much and have provided such a glorious portion for me forever. I want to please you forever. I want to obey you in everything and I will serve you with my whole heart because I love you, not nearly as much as you've loved us, but I love you for all that you are to me. When we're aware of the greatness of God in our lives, when we're led by the Holy Spirit, we also feel that the future promise of holiness is in agreement with all of our future expectations. We're told here in 1 John 3, verse 2, again it says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him, the Bible says. Therefore, we should expect to be like Christ. We're going to one day be like him. Not equal, but like in perfect nature. If we understand that we shall one day be like Christ, doesn't that make sense that we strive to be like Christ today? If that's what our future has in store for us in heaven, doesn't it make sense that we start working on it now? If, if we're one day going to be made perfect in heaven, doesn't it make sense that we're working towards making that transition as seamless as possible? The idea isn't to make yourself as wretched as possible, knowing that you're going to be made perfect regardless of how good or bad you are here on earth because of all that God has done for you. It should be our desire to make the transition from earth to heaven as seamless as possible. We know that we're going to undergo quite a change no matter how it happens. But as far as our nature is concerned, we should be today in our lives here on earth striving for perfection, striving for holiness as much as possible. If the Lord is going to make each and every one of us perfect who believe on his son Jesus Christ, does it make sense for us to live like we're before we were saved? No. What if you knew that by the end of this week, your time on earth would come to an end? And that God would be bringing you home to heaven. How would you live out the rest of this week? What choices would you make? How would you drastically change your life? Doesn't it seem shameful for us to continue to live for the world and for yourself, knowing that our future in Christ has guaranteed us a home in heaven? It's extremely hypocritical to be living with one foot in the world and one foot in the church, thinking that this is going to be acceptable. God doesn't want a half-hearted commitment. God wants all of us. He wants all of us forever, not just for a few hours a week. Can you imagine if heaven was only a couple hours a week where we would get to experience it and then we'd be banished and, all right, see you next week. No, heaven is forever. And such worldly passions and sinful lusts are not for true Christians to be following after if what we're going to be experiencing forever is the glory of God. There are certain things that Christians should not pursue and the pleasures of the world and the sins are, are, of our past are at the top of that list of things that we should not be pursuing. Our lives should be so drastically different since Christ has saved us. He took us out of the horrible pit of sin, uh, the, the miry clay where our feet never were able to stand on any sort of stable ground, and he has set our feet upon the rock of Jesus Christ and promised us eternity in heaven with him. Why would we ever want to stoop back down to live like our old selves before he saved us? What sense does that make? When you've tasted of the goodness of God in your life through the working of Jesus Christ, what could possibly influence you to want to go back to that old lifestyle before you were saved? Have you ever in all your lives and all the years that you've been saved thought, you know what, I had it better before Christ saved me. 
No one, I promise you, has ever thought that. No one has ever thought that, you know, this Christian life, it's a big letdown. It's not as good as what I thought it was going to be. No. Because once you experience even a taste of God's goodness in your life and how he has saved you from the sin and the eternal punishment of your sin, there is nothing but joy that should be in your heart as you consider how good he is to you. There is nothing, absolutely nothing profitable out in the world. And the life that we now have in Christ is a life that is full of the greatest blessings that we don't even fully begin to reap until we're received into heaven. And this is what we see expressed here in the first three verses of 1 John chapter 3. The very natural working of things under the blessing of God's Spirit it leads the child of God, as it says here in verse number three, every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. It leads the child of God to purify himself since he expects to be like Christ before long. That is the hope of every Christian. That is the purifying hope of every believer. Would you bow with me in prayer here this evening? Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the reminder about what is awaiting every single believer. I pray, Lord, that as we have talked about holiness and how we are to be holy because you, God, are holy, even when we can't fully, Lord, define what it means to be holy, but what we see of you, the standard that has been set in your word, the example that Christ has lived for us, Lord, we have enough to work off of. We know enough, Lord, to, to set the measuring stick for us to emulate. I pray, Lord, that you would help us in this journey of life, as much of a struggle as it may be. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be actively preparing ourselves for the future that awaits us in your presence in heaven one day. I ask, Lord, that you would help each and every one of us to be working on purifying ourselves through the help of the Holy Spirit, as we know, Lord, that you are working on us to make us more like your Son. We love you, Lord, and I know that, Lord, it is truly a wonder as we stop and consider how you could ever love us. But we are just so truly thankful that we indeed are the objects of your love. Lord, we thank you for your word and for how it speaks so clearly to us. May we continue to learn and grow from it each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.